If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 7 through 21 today. And verses 7 through 21 of 1 John 4 is probably, it's probably the highest proof text in like the entire New Testament. This is like a hundred proof distilled gospel goodness. Uh, In fact, I think that if you had one section of scripture, like if you could only pick 14 verses to take with you onto a desert island or to take with you into a prison, if you could only have 14 verses to feed your soul and to help you know who God is and to help you know who Jesus, his son is, and to help you know what this thing called the gospel is and what the Christian life is, I think it would be really hard to find 14 verses more clear, more deep, more beautiful than John chapter four, verses seven through 21. So today, as we open this up, I'm gonna read it and we're just gonna dive in. And I'm just a bit overwhelmed by it because in some ways, these 14 verses, this is essentially the concentrated goodness of all of the Christian life. Like everything that we wanna study, everything we wanna believe, everything that we want to capture our souls about what it is to be a Christian is actually in these 14 verses. So these 14 verses are beautiful and they're deep and they're big and they're simple without being simplistic. So take your Bible, follow along. I'm gonna read these verses and then we're gonna talk together. Starting in verse seven, John, the beloved old apostle writes to his Christian church, And he says this, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Moreover, excuse me, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with with us so that we may may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he sees cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I just want to take these 14 verses and I just want to wrap these verses around my heart for however many more years I get to breathe air on this planet. Because in these 14 verses, we have the essence of the entire Christian life. These 14 verses show us God, they show us the gospel, and they show us growth. They show us God, they show us the gospel, and they show us what Christian growth is, what it looks like to grow as a follower of Jesus. So today, God, gospel, growth, in essence, this is what it is to be a Christian. Who is God? Look at verse eight. Anyone who does not know God, excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Now, those three words, God is love, are some of the most profound and unique words in the entire Christian faith. Those three words are so much different than what our culture worships. And they're so much different than the message of man-centered dead religion that it's hard at first to even wrap our heads around what this apostle is talking about when he says God is love. Because culturally in this particular moment, out here in the world in which we live, we don't believe God is love. We believe love is God. Love is God. And that sounds pretty great at first. Like that sounds pretty awesome. And the mantra that goes with that statement that love is God is the one that we all kind of like to hear as American Christians. And that statement is to your own self be true or follow your own hearts. If love is God, then it means that you and I can individually sort of figure out what it is that we love and we can set our hearts, desires and affections on what we love and we can follow our hearts, hopefully to a life of depth and fulfillment. Now, let's just say, let's just say honestly that following your own heart and to thy own self being true makes for killer Disney princess movies, right? Like that's the theme of every Disney princess movie. She's going to follow her heart. She's going to be true to herself and it's going to be awesome. She's going to be who she wants to be and dreams that she can be. Makes great Disney princess movies. The problem is it doesn't really make for great lives because the idea of being true to your own heart is a pretty naive version of what's actually in your heart and in my heart. If we could be honest If we could be sober, if we could really look with clarity into what's inside of our hearts, what we'd find is that this guy named John Calvin was really right when he said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Meaning what your heart and what my heart loves equals a thousand different things that can't name you, can't satisfy you, can't complete you. And we aim the desires of our hearts at those things as if they can be the deep meaning of our lives. So the businessman who's being true to his own heart and following his own heart actually has a lot of self-love and selfishness in that heart that says, what's really gonna complete me is power. So if I can keep power and acquire power, everything's going to be great. So love being God in his life doesn't actually lead to the people around him having a deeper, richer life. It leads to him devouring the people that he's supposed to care for. 
the husband who's trying to be true to his own heart, who quote unquote falls out of love with his wife and trades her in for the newer model. Like that kind of trueness to our heart doesn't lead to a deeper life. It flattens out life because the reality is our hearts are really bent in on ourselves. There's a lot of selfishness and there's a lot of vanity and there's a lot of cowardice in our hearts. So the culture's mantra of love being God actually is really vague and really individualistic and actually doesn't lead to a deeper life. It leads to a lot of ugliness. Now, religion doesn't do a lot better with trying to define who God is because dead man-centered religion doesn't take John's statement as the most definitive statement on the essence of God. God is love. What man-centered religion does is it takes good and true, beautiful attributes of God and it elevates one attribute above all others as if that is the definition of God's essence. So let me try to flesh this out with you. John does not say in this text, God is power. God is power. Now, is God powerful? Well, yeah, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that God is all powerful. He is omnipotent. There's nothing he can't do. God is incredibly powerful. He's not limited. He can do whatever he wants to do. But when we say that his essence is power, that leads us to some really scary conclusions about God. Like if God's deepest essence is just his power, then what's to separate him from other dictators that can do whatever they want to their people with impunity? Like maybe God's just like Kim Jong-un. Maybe God's like Pol Pot. Maybe God's like Hitler. Maybe there's an all-powerful God who's not love, who's not good. And that's actually not good news for human beings. That's terrible news. Viking gods were really powerful. They were super good at beer pong and war, right? They were really powerful, but that wasn't good news for the people that worshiped them. Now, John doesn't say, he doesn't say God is knowledge. He doesn't say God is knowledge. Uh, Do Christians believe that God is a God of all knowledge? Absolutely. Like we believe that God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. Uh, Let me let you into some bad news. The stuff that you think you're hiding from others and from God, you're not hiding anything. You're naked before him. He knows everything. But to say his core essence is knowledge kind of sounds like we're talking about a supercomputer or the internet. Like, is God just this cold entity with sort of facts and outputs and data and stats? John doesn't say God is power. He doesn't say God is knowledge. He doesn't say God is ruler. Although God is perfect in his sovereignty. He's perfect in his sovereignty. He doesn't say God is creator, although we really do believe that he created everything out of nothing. If his core essence is being creator, that actually leads to some terrifying conclusions about God. If God's core essence is creator, then what the heck was he doing pre-creation? Right? Like does God, if his essence is creator, does God have to have a creation to be God? Like that sounds like a really sad God. What was he doing in eternity past? Well, he was just like waiting to create the world so he could start godding. Like that sounds sad. That's like a really bad personal ad. Single God seeking creation. <laughs> like 
He is, he is, don't get me wrong. He is creator. He created everything in his brilliance. But John is doing something in this text that's so beautiful and so important. It's at the very beating heart of the Christian faith. He's telling us that with our little finite brains, the closest thing we can get to describing the essence of God is to say these three words, God is love. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's the creator. He knows everything. He rules all of creation. But in the midst of all of those attributes, there's one thing that describes his essence, and that's that he is love. And the reason he's love is because he's always existed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. John in this moment is lifting up the curtain and he's giving us a glimpse into the one of the most unique and beautiful realities of the Christian faith. And that's that we worship one God, not three, but the one God that we worship is not a God that lived in solitary confinement, isolated in eternity past, bent in on himself in some narcissistic way. The God that we love and worship is a God who has always existed and who wants to disclose himself to you first and foremost as father and as son and his spirit, and in that community within God himself, there is the perfection of love that creates every good thing that you've ever tasted as a glimpse of the God who created it. John Owen, brilliant theologian, said that God is the fountain and prototype of all love. All love in creation was introduced from this fountain to give a shadow and resemblance of it. So let let me just with my crummy words and my crummy intellect, just try to help you see something that's bigger than what I can even help you see unless the spirit of God does something. Who is God? God is father delighting in for all eternity, his unique only begotten son, delighting in giving enjoying the overflow of his affection and enjoyment of his son. Who is God? He is son receiving and basking and enjoying the perfect love of the father. Who is the spirit? The spirit's not the crazy uncle of the Trinity. The spirit is God of the same essence as the father and the son who delights in taking the love of the father and the love of the son and communicating it and being in the midst of that perfect Trinitarian dance of love that is God. Now, here's the problem. John tells us in 1 John four twelve that no one's ever seen God. So the problem is I'm describing a God that maybe you hope would exist Maybe you'd want him to exist, but how would you know this God if he did exist? If there is this God who is love, that's good news. That's better than there's this God who's a supercomputer or there's this God who's a dictator. If there is a God who is perfect love and perfect community, how would you come to know him when you can't see him, right? You can't see him and you can't get to him through scientific measurement. 
You can't get to him through human intellect alone. And he's spoken to us in some really beautiful ways with like creation and human conscience. But even the most transcendent moment that you ever have on the top of a mountain, looking at a sunset, even if you see it as beautiful and you're like, hey, there's gotta be a God out there somewhere to make this kind of beauty. That's not gonna lead you to the conclusion that he is father, son, and Holy Spirit, is it? Right, watching a, a mom nurse a newborn baby, like you might have your heart captured by that. And you might be like, hey, there's gotta be a God. There's gotta be a God that could create that kind of love. But you're not gonna conclude that that God is father, son, and Holy Spirit. This is why, this is why Martin Luther said these words. He said, for although the whole world has most carefully sought to understand the nature, mind, and activity of God. He has had no success in this whatsoever. Yeah, that's right. But, and here's the good news. God himself has revealed and disclosed the deepest profundity of his fatherly heart, his sheer inexpressible love. How has he done that? Well, look, look, friends, the Christian life is not just God. It's God and it's gospel. And the way that God has disclosed who he is and the way that he's demonstrated his love, the way that the father has gone completely and totally public is through his son, Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus is the way that we come to know the love of this God who is love. First John chapter four, look at verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Look at me. God spoke in so many beautiful ways throughout history. So many ways creation and conscience and the Old Testament prophets. God spoke through dreams. He spoke to a little pagan guy named Abram who was probably worshiping his ancestors and the sun and the moon and the stars. But all of the ways that God has spoken in creation, they fall short of his final and best word, which is Jesus Christ. If you wanna know who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, if you wanna know what God is like, Jesus is the answer to your quest. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the invisible being made visible. Hebrews 1 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here's what he's saying. All of the shadows of human sin and rebellion, all of those shadows. See, our hearts can't see God because they're dead to him. And all of the shadows that we live in, the reality of being haunted by a hole in our soul that only a transcendent God can fill and not knowing how to get to him and not even knowing if he's out there or if he cares. All of those shadows have had moments where light from God's revelation has moved into the darkness. 
prophets, teachers, wise men and women that God disclosed a part of his nature to. But in the fullness of time, here's what happens. Jesus, the very radiance of God, he steps into the darkness of this world to beam forth the very light of God so that you would know through the teaching of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, who God is and what he cares about and what he's like. Jesus told his friend Philip these words. He said in John 14, have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? I feel like that's true of me more often than I want to admit. Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the father. So here's what happens. God in his love, God in his mercy, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who loves to give out, who's not a black hole that sucks dry, but who is the fountain of all joy and life and beauty and goodness. That generous God has overflown, overflowed in his desire to be known and enjoyed in the sending of his son, Jesus. And he sent his son, Jesus, so that you would know who God is and know what God's like. And not only that, so that you could actually be invited into the very life of this self-giving God. Here's how John puts it right here. Look at verse 10, 1 John 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hey, this is crazy news. I leaned over to Chad as we were singing this morning and I couldn't get the words out because it overwhelmed me. I said, it makes all the difference in the world that we worship a happy God. Like just stop for a second. The God we worship is not a God who is lonely and brooding and prone to outbursts of anger. The God we worship is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we were separated from his love because we hated him and loved his creation. We didn't want anything to do with him. We did not love him, but he is love. So he sends his son, Jesus, to die in our place, to bring us back to him so that we could actually experience the life of this triune God. Do you know what it is to be in Jesus? This is crazy. This is so much better than dusty, dry, dead religion. Do you know what it is to be in Jesus? It's to have the very same delight that the father pours out on his unique only begotten son. It's to have that same delight poured out on you because the son his righteousness, his goodness, his perfection has been credited to your account, even though you didn't deserve it. Hey man, there are moments I believe that. Hands down, they're the best moments of my life. There are moments where I'm like, hey, I don't have to do anything to get God to love me. I don't have to clean myself up. I don't have to hold my heart just right where I'm hiding the bad parts when I come to him, I have moments where I'm like, oh, this is real. God wants to share his life and his love and his beauty with people that were his enemies and he does it in Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books is this crazy little book called The Screwtape Letters. 
It's really wonderful. It's, it's the story of this older demon, Screwtape, who's mentoring a younger demon. And um, he's basically coaching him in the ways of deception and temptation. And in one section, the older demon writes to his nephew these words. He says, one must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to him. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. The gospel, Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection is the good news that through Christ and him alone, you're invited to taste and know of the fullness of God who's the headwaters of everything good and right and satisfying. I hope you trust him today. I hope, I hope if you've confused religion with the gospel that you come to Jesus today. I hope that if you're a follower of Jesus and you've got fear and terror when it comes to the presence of God, I hope that you would see that in his love, he wants to actually relate to you as a son, as a daughter through the finished work of Jesus. And this leads us to the final reality of the Christian life. It's, it's God, this beautiful triune giving God who overflows with joy and love and happiness. It's gospel that he sends Jesus to die in our place for our sins so that we can be reconciled to the father. And then it's growth, it's growth. And this is the slow part. This is the frustrating part. This is the part that's painful. And this is the part that sometimes feels like it's never actually gonna happen. It's growth. Twice in this text that we just read, John mentions the love of God being perfected in us. Perfected in us. Meaning there's a process that's at work in our lives. There's a process that started with the love of God and it continues through the love of God. And it has an end date where it's finished by the love of God in which God's love is actually forming you to be someone more like Jesus than you are today. It's forming you. It's this formative, creative, powerful love that's actually working in your life to not make you not you. It's not nirvana. You don't disappear into the love of God. It's love that's working to make you more you than you are today as you reflect the beauty and the radiance of Jesus. Now, the way that this love works in us is through this word that John uses like five or six times here. It's this word abide, abide. If you wanna know what Christian growth is, it comes out of abiding in the love of God in some unique ways. Now, let's just take a quick inform, informal poll. Uh, if you're really honest, you could raise your hand or you could be like most church folks and keep your hand down and pretend that everything's cool. 
if you have sins in your life that just keep eating you your lunch and you hate it and you don't know how to overthrow them and you keep fighting against them and in all of your strength and effort, they still eat your lunch. If that's you, raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. If the voice of shame is so flipping loud that you can't hear the father's affirmation and love as often as you want to hear it, if that voice of shame in your heart's really loud. Can you just be honest? That's me. How about guilt? How about fear? How about crippling anxiety? We're a mess, aren't we? (laughs) We are a mess. How do we grow? How do we grow in this Christian life? How do we experience more freedom and more joy in the love of God? Well, John's going to tell us some things that we could spend the rest of our lives unpacking. Let me give them to you quickly. What does abiding in his love really look like? Let me give you a few things. One, abiding in his love is in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. By this we know and abide in him and he in us because he gives us of his spirit. Now, let's stop here for just a second. If you have any history in the church, you probably have some strong emotional reactions to the idea of really having an ongoing practical experiential relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit gets a bad rap for some weird stuff that people do. And some of you are terrified that if you actually experience God, the Holy Spirit, he would like humiliate you by making you fall out in front of your friends, or he'd just force you to speak in tongues on a first date. You'd be, <laughs> you'd be like, you know, you're at like a coffee shop and just all of a sudden it's like, just speaking in tongues. Or if you really get too close to the Holy Spirit, you're going to end up like some Benny Hinn cat, just white suits and giant cufflinks and fundraising to buy private jets. Like, no, no. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit does something so awesome, so beautiful. The Holy Spirit among his many other works and activities, the Holy Spirit is the one that takes the love of the Father that is yours through the sacrifice of the Son and he helps it become not just a doctrine that you memorize, but a relationship that you experience. If you've ever had a moment where you really believe God loved you, or if you've ever been on a Sunday morning and you sang these gospel songs we sing every week and your heart was on fire because you believed them and you were so joyful about the truth that we were singing. That's not just you talking yourself into feeling something. That's the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Abiding in the love of God is learning to be repeatedly filled by the Spirit and to hunger for the Spirit and to listen to the Spirit because what the Spirit does is he helps your heart cry out, Abba, Father, like Jesus did in his life. His earthly ministry. Now, it doesn't stop there. We abide in his love through the spirit. We also abide in his love as we love our brothers and sisters. Look at verse 12. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here's this beautiful thing that happens. As the spirit of God reworks our hearts and our lives, as he renovates our lives to be lives of love, every time you sacrificially love your brother or sister in Christ, what's happening is you're abiding in the love of God. And what's happening is you abide in the love of God. Remember we said that the gospel is the capital M manifestation of God going public in the world. Every time you love a brother or sister in Christ, 
there's a lower end manifestation of who God is as you actually sacrificially love and serve each other. And what happens is God is, he is perfecting his love in you and me in the difficult process of us loving people, even when we don't want to love them. So when a wife wants to respond to her husband in a way that's not loving, that's not full of the grace and kindness of God. And instead she surrenders her will to the beauty of God. And she says, not my will, but yours be done. And she loves him sacrificially. What's happening is God's love is being perfected in her. It's forming her. It's shaping her to look like Jesus. This is why Christian community is so essential because if you're not experiencing opportunities to rub against other people and know them and their stories and to experience patience and gentleness and kindness and sacrifice and generosity, it's really difficult for you to grow up in the love of God. Have you ever met a Christian that's been a Christian for a really long time and they're just super stunted? Like they're just grumpy and they're mean and they can do like doctrine trivia, but it's like, I don't know that I want to worship the same God you worship because you're kind of a Old school frontline, I would have said it, but I know better now. (laughs) I would have said it. I'm growing. I'm getting older. I'm almost 40, guys. (laughs) But have you ever met one of those Christians like, dude, like you don't really love anybody and you don't really seem to be impressed with Jesus and you know facts, but like, I just don't want to be like you when I grow up. One of the ways we war against that is not by trying to spot those people and judge them. One of the ways we war against that is to put ourselves in proximity with other messy people and laying down our lives for them. Let me give you two more quickly. Abiding in his love happens as we believe, believe, confess, and testify to the good news of Jesus. This is where the true doctrine of Jesus Christ is essential. The church John is writing to is starting to deny the full humanity of Jesus. And he's saying, hey, you can't abide in the love of God and tweak and change the core essentials of the gospel. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. He died for the sins of the world. You start messing with the gospel, you're departing from the love of God. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 14. We have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe that God, that God has for us, the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Hey, don't, don't ever listen to a Christian that's like, oh, we don't need any doctrine. We just need God's love. God's doctrine, true doctrine of who Jesus is, is all about helping you abide in the love of God. You start lessening the cost to our God for our redemption. You start tweaking the atonement of Jesus. You're running from the love of God. You're not running in the love of God. I'll give you one more. We'll end with this. This one is the one of all these for me that I'm really wanting bad. I'm wanting this to grow in my life. Um, Number four, lastly, abiding in his love. Abiding in his love is about growth and gospel confidence. Gospel confidence. These words just jumped off the page at me as I was studying this text. Look at verse 17 and 18. By this is love perfected in us 
so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now look at this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Man, I think what he's saying here is that abiding in the love of God and being formed by the love of God, it creates in you this crazy dynamic where you're not confident in your track record or your good deeds or in how great a job you are in comparison to other people. You're not really confident in your resume. Like you don't want to stand on the day of judgment before the holy God who's a burning fire and break out like your track record of how awesome you are. But instead you're growing, you're growing in increasing confidence that the finished work of Jesus is so enough for you that you can actually stand before God with all of your spots and all of your wrinkles, all of your sin and all of your brokenness and know Jesus's blood is so powerful and his resurrection is so glorious that on that great day, you're not gonna hear, get out of my presence, you filthy sinner. You're gonna hear, welcome my son, welcome my daughter. This starts to happen as instead of hiding sin from God or hiding shame or hiding guilt or hiding fear, we're all prone to do that, right? Our first parents in the garden, they blew it. They sinned against God. What's the first thing they did? They hid from God. They covered up from one another. As you grow in gospel confidence, you prepare for the great day when you stand before God. You prepare for that day by repeatedly dragging into his presence the things you'd rather not have him see. When I show God my greed, because I know he already sees it, Or I'm like, hey, God, here's this lust that's in me and I really hate it and it's really ugly and I don't want you to even know about it, but I know you know. When you bring that into his presence and you show it to him, and instead of receiving condemnation and accusation and the crushing judgment that you deserve, you experience his love in Christ that even that thing you just showed him Jesus paid for, you're growing in gospel confidence that prepares you for the great day. Growing in gospel confidence. I want that so bad for our church. It's a scary thought to stand naked before our creator who's without sin. That's a scary thought. Praise be to Jesus though, that when we stand before him, the clothes that we'll be wearing are the very righteousness of Jesus. That's amazing. 